last week. Apparently, it wasn't a big enough train wreck because they invited me back to uh, teach yet again. We're going to be in the fifth lesson of the Church Remembers series. Last week, we were in the churches united with Christ, and this week, we will be in the Church Remembers Christ. We're not going to perform the ordinance of communion, but we are going to talk about it, especially from Paul's perspective as he wrote to the Corinthian church. So the bulk of our text is going to come from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 26. And I'd like to go ahead and read that in its entirety before we begin. Beginning in verse 23. Oh, hold on a second. Stay on that slide. I'm glad, you, I'm glad that's put in there because I almost forgot. Before we get to this, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 16. I'd like to start with this because it really kind of sets us up for tonight. Uh, verse 16, Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Now, this is where we get our word communion. Communion is the Greek word koinonia, which means to share which one has in anything. It's the participation. So, two ordinances have been given to the church as a way of celebrating special truths. We have water baptism, and we have communion. Communion was instituted by Christ as a way of remembering His death on the cross to pay sin's penalty. Christians drink a cup, which represents Christ's shed blood, and eat bread, which represents His body that He willingly allowed to be broken. Communion ought to be taken on a regular basis and must involve solemn, humble self-examination. So let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 32. Verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord." But a man must examine himself, and in, doing, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, so that we will not be condemned along with the world."
So we thank God for giving us His Son as our example, sacrifice, and Lord. The most significant events of all human history are one, the incarnation of Christ, and the second, His subsequent death and resurrection. We celebrate events, don't we? We celebrate birthdays, anniversaries, and in my household because we have adopted. We celebrate gotcha days, the days that we got our kids, and they are just as important and just as special. So it would be strange indeed if God had not given us a special day, or I'm sorry, a special way to remember and celebrate such an important event. Water baptism and communion are the two special ways the church celebrates Christ. Communion, sometimes called the breaking of bread, or the Eucharist, which comes from the Greek phrase eucharisteo, boy, that's easy for you to say, which means to be grateful, to, to feel thankful, to give thanks. That's where we get our word Eucharist. Or the Lord's table. It's the regular celebration which Christ commanded in remembrance of His life, death, and resurrection and His soon return. This lesson will explain the origins, the meaning and significance of communion, and will also explain how someone should prepare themselves for communion. So our first heading, I hope, hopefully we, we got this squared away, our first heading is the prominence of communion. Now, the, by definition, prominence is the fact or condition of standing out. Because of the two ordinances of baptism and communion have historically been recognized by the Protestant church, um, an ordinance is an outward invisible sign which was ordained by Christ as a symbol of a deeper spiritual reality. Now we have often heard uh, at weddings talking about the wedding band, that the wedding band is an outward symbol of a commitment or a covenant that a husband and a wife have made together before God and man. We see that water baptism uh, is not salvific, meaning you cannot be saved by baptism, but it is an outward expression of an inward belief. It's actually the Christian's first act of obedience. Lost my place, excuse me. Both of these practices are intimately connected to the life, death, and resurrection of Christ and, have thus, have, and thus have a central place in the church's worship and witness since its founding. Now let's talk about the origin of communion. Communion was initiated by Christ at the celebration of the Last Supper before His crucifixion. In 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three. Paul writes, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. Now prior to this occasion, there never had been a Lord's Supper. Christ and his disciples were celebrating something. What were they celebrating? I think I heard it. Passover. They were celebrating Passover. So it's no coincidence that he used this occasion to initiate the practice of communion. Not only was this the last occasion Jesus and his disciples would be together before his sacrificial death, but it was also the meal held in celebration of the Passover. 
You see, the Passover remains one of the most sacred Jewish feasts because it celebrates God's deliverance of them from 400 years of bondage in Egypt. God used ten plagues to force the Egyptian pharaoh to free Israel, with the final plague being the killing of the firstborn of the land by the angel of death. The Lord commanded his people Israel to smear the blood of a spotless lamb on the doorposts and lintels of their houses. The Passover feast was initiated by God in remembrance of the night in which the angel of death passed over the families who obeyed his instructions. The Passover lamb itself was roasted and eaten inside the homes along with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. And we read about this in Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 14. Let's read those together. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month they are each to take a lamb for themselves according to their fathers, households a lamb for each household. Now if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them. According to what each man should eat, you are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that same night roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled at all with water, but rather roasted with fire, both its head and its legs, along with its entrails. And you shall not leave any of it over until morning, but whatever is left of it until morning you shall burn with fire. Now you shall eat in this manner, with your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be assigned for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now this day will be a memorial to you. And you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, you are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. Paul reveals that the practice of communion was not merely a nice idea or a spiritual ritual. Or, I'm sorry, a sacred ritual, but a command from the Lord. Paul received it from the Lord. From the Lord that which he delivered to the church. And we see that. In verse 23. So the language portrays a serious and solemn command, placing this ordinance on par with all the sacred doctrine of the church. It would appear that Paul, that because Paul had not been present on the eve of Christ's betrayal, he had received the ordinance of communion directly from the Lord Jesus. Such was the importance of this ordinance to both Jew and Gentile. 
So that is the origin. Now we will look at the supremacy of communion. Jesus took the Passover festival, which celebrated deliverance from bondage, and He transformed it into the celebration of a far greater deliverance. Deliverance from the power and penalty of sin. He took an ordinance which was central to God's old covenant with Israel and replaced it with an ordinance which is central to God's new covenant with the church. Now, I don't remember if uh, 1 Corinthians 11.25 was first or if Jeremiah 31.31 was. All right, so 1 Corinthians 11.25, In the same way he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 speaks of this new covenant. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart. I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They will not teach again, each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. So the old covenant was replaced with the new covenant. Jesus took that which represented a temporal and limited redemption for the nation and transformed it into that which celebrates an eternal and comprehensive redemption for all people, for all time. The celebration of communion is as much superior to the Passover as the blood of Christ is superior to the blood of a Passover lamb. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 14 says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of the heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So we have the origin and the supremacy of communion. But what is the purpose of communion? What was the purpose? Well, let's read verse 24, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The main purpose for which Christ initiated communion was to remember. It was a remembrance of Him. But it wasn't the only purpose. This ordinance also provided an opportunity for Christians to fellowship with one another 
as they celebrate Christ and proclaim his death until he returns. If you haven't heard me say it, you'll hear it tonight. Life's a team sport. We're in this together, y'all. Okay? We're in this together. There are no lone rangers. So now we have a remembrance of Christ. Communion is primarily a regular remembrance of Christ's sacrificial death. The bread, which had represented the Exodus, now represents the body of Christ. The word body points to Christ's entire life and not merely his physical body. The bread thus represents Christ's incarnation, his teaching, his ministry, his life, and his death. The body points to all that Christ is and all that he does. All of this is symbolized with the bread, which is for Christians. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four says, And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. What's interesting about the unleavened bread is that even now, the unleavened bread, the Jews celebrate the unleavened bread because remember, leaven represents sin and corruption. And they had to flee Egypt so quickly. They didn't have time. If you've ever baked, leavened bread has to rise. It takes time. You can't just make up the dough, flatten it out, and throw it in the oven. It has to rise. Okay? Now, we lived as a kid in a pure, in a pure and beam house. And any time mama was baking, you better not move a muscle. Because if you shook that house and that bread fell, we were going to pay dearly. But that's what it is. It's, it's, it's unleavened. It doesn't have yeast. But what's interesting enough is that when they bake it, it leaves scorch marks on it, black marks, which represented Christ's scourging, His stripes. But also as it bakes, the air pops out of it and it creates holes within the bread, which also represent the piercings. Jesus was without sin. He was unleavened. And His body bore the stripes as well as the piercings. It's remarkable. It's such a beautiful picture that we can see to remember. It's not just little chiclet crackers. Okay, It's so much more. Oh, they're, they're all delicious. So, the body points to all that Christ is and all that He does. All of this symbolized in the bread. In eating the bread, Christians are remembering the bread of life, who has in turn given them life. John 6.35, I hope it's in there, says, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life, and he who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. The wine, which had represented the blood of the Passover lamb, now represents the blood of Christ. Verse 25 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, In the same way he took the cup, also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Now, some interesting things about the cup which actually comes from Exodus chapter 6. There are four cups in the Passover uh, Seder. Okay? And each cup represents something from Exodus chapter 6. Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7 
says, Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Now the four cups here, as we look at verses 6 and 7, the first cup in the Passover meal represents that I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Okay? The second cup, I will deliver you from their bondage. The third cup, I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. And then the fourth cup, I will take you for my people and I will be your God. When Jesus was speaking, he was referring to the third cup of redemption. The old covenant which God had made with Israel was ratified by the repeated offerings of bulls and goats, but the new covenant was established once for all by the precious blood of Christ, the perfect sacrifice. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28 says this, So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin, to those who eagerly await him. God has established a new covenant in Christ, not merely with Israel, but with all who are in Christ. A celebration of the blood of Christ is a celebration of all the blessings which come with being in Christ. Now, scripturally, we can understand that the bread and wine are not just mere symbols, but they are powerful pictures to partake of and to enter into as we see the Lord's Supper as the new Passover. Next is the proclamation of Christ. The darkness of sin, the darkness of sin should not be allowed to overshadow the light of the resurrection. Communion is a celebration of the entire life of Christ, of the victory of the resurrection, of the forgiveness of sins and of the hope of the new covenant. Verse 25 in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says, In the same way he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So with this, the celebration of communion is a proclamation of the Lord's death until he returns. Verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It is therefore a proclamation of the gospel and of the hope of Christ's soon return. While the world scoffs over the existence of Christ, his church continues to proclaim his death until his return. The word proclaim is the Greek word to, pub, to proclaim publicly, to publish. But it's also the same word that's translated preach. Now this isn't going to be in the slides, and if you want to write this down, I encourage you to. Preach is the same word, cantagello. Uh, I'm probably butchering that. Cantanagello in the Greek. But it also means preach. Preach and proclaim, they're synonymous. Acts 4.2 Acts 13.15, Acts 13.38, Acts 15.36. 
You'll find it in 1 Corinthians, Philippians, and Colossians. This word is the same word translated preach. When we take communion, we are proclaiming Christ to both the physical world and the spiritual world. Don't think for a moment that the spiritual world is not watching, okay? There's, we're, we're in the Halloween season, okay? We're seeing the movies come out. We're seeing the children's movies come out. Don't play with this, folks. And those of you tuning into the live stream, this is nothing to be toyed with. Just because it says Disney in front of it should raise red flags to begin with. Okay? Any children's movie about witchcraft probably ought to move on. I'm off my soapbox. You know, what, what was the old children's song? Careful little eyes what you see. Careful little ears what you hear. Look, garbage in, garbage out. It's not just a, a, a phrase of speech. It's real. Spiritual warfare is real. So whenever you proclaim Christ, you preach Christ through the act of communion. And the physical world and the spiritual world see it. The practice of communion. Verses 27 through 32. I don't recall if we're reading, if they're all in, are they bunched up together, 27 through 32? Okay. Well, if, if they are, we'll, we'll just we'll keep on going. Communion is an important event which unites the church in focusing on Jesus Christ's sacrifice to pay the penalty for sin. Such a vital component of worship calls for a serious attitude and careful attention prior to taking part in it. Verse 27 says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and, and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord, so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So, somebody doesn't like my voice and they want to hear it from somebody else, apparently. So, communion is an important event which unites the church in focusing on Jesus Christ's sacrifice to pay the penalty of sin. Such a vital component, component of worship calls for a serious attitude and careful attention prior to taking part in it. There is self-examination before the Lord. The celebration of communion is the celebration of the person and work of Christ. To celebrate communion in an unworthy manner, therefore, profanes Christ Himself. Verse 27 says this clearly, and you can see it on the screen. The Corinthians were profaning Christ by sharing in communion without examining themselves and were thereby bringing judgment upon themselves. Verse 29. This points to their failure. Their failure to recognize the gravity. The gravity of the occasion is evidenced in their sinful and selfish attitudes immediately preceding 
the communion. Look, there is no shame if you come in to church and they do communion and you sit one out because you know something's up. In fact, I would much rather see that than somebody go up there and take it wrongly. You have no idea what you're playing with here. Read it. Read the book. It says what's at risk. Those that sleep, no, you're not going to get a full belly at lunchtime and go take a nap. Those that sleep are those that died. Paul calls each person to examine himself in verse 28 and to judge him or herself in verse 31. By such an examination, a Christian checks his own motives and attitudes towards Christ, towards sin, and toward other Christians. This self-examination includes confessing and repenting from known sin, resolving conflict with other Christians, and forgiving others. Failure to correctly examine oneself shows a failure to appreciate the preciousness of Christ's blood and the seriousness of the sin which required its shedding. Failure to adequately examine oneself will inevitably result in discipline from the Lord. Verse 32. Some in the Corinthian congregation, they had fallen sick. Others had died as a result of their flippant attitude toward communion. Verse 30. As Christians assess their own hearts before the Lord, communion becomes a regular and profound means of purifying Christ's church. Now with the practice of communion comes the worship of God. The early church shared in communion fellowship meals, which came to be known as love feasts. Jude chapter 12 says, These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when, the feast, when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves. Clouds without water carried along by winds. Autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead, uprooted. Those are pretty powerful words. Although these love feasts were ordinary meals, they were intended to celebrate the unity and fellowship among believers in Christ. Paul appropriately alludes to it as the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 20, when he says, Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Paul knew what they were doing, and he called them out. That was one of the purposes of this letter to them. They were doing it wrong. He was holding them accountable. Because it was a supper held by Christians in common fellowship in the Lord, the nature of these meals made it natural to close with the celebration of communion, which was evidently the practice at Corinth. These love feasts were, however, sometimes abused and became an occasion for gluttony, selfishness, and self-promotion. 2 Peter 2.1 says this, Suffering wrong is the wages of doing wrong. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you. That's, uh, that's some pretty powerful language. The fact that they're stains and blemishes, not exactly a pick-me-up, but definitely calling them out. As well as in, back in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, 20 through 22 
Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this, I will not praise you. This not only undermined the fellowship of the church, but brought the celebration of communion into disrepute. Such blatant hypocrisy could not be tolerated just before celebrating an ordinance as sacred as communion. Communion is a simple ceremony. It's a simple ceremony which makes use of the common elements of bread and cup as symbols of the body and blood of Christ. The Puritan commentator Matthew Poole found it meaningful that Paul used the terms bread and cup and not the words body and blood. And I quote, From hence it appears that the bread and wine is not, as papists say, transubstantiated or turned into the very substance of the flesh and blood of Christ. When the communicants eat it and drink it, it is still the same bread and cup it was. Transubstantiation is not biblical. It's not biblical. There is no biblical evidence. And if somebody tries to show you otherwise, I hope that you're ready. Because we're supposed to be ready. And I hope that you can show them why they are in error. But speak truth in love. And if they hear it, you've won your brother or sister over. And if they don't, that's okay. That's between them and God. But you did your due diligence. Transubstantiation is not biblical. These are passed out among the Christians when they are gathered, the bread and the cup, together for worship and eaten together in common fellowship with the Lord and with one another. Communion is often accompanied by the public reading of Scripture, by prayer and by singing, in order to promote an appropriate attitude of worship. The celebration of communion is the celebration of the sacrificial death of Christ and should therefore be a regular part of the worship of the church. For this reason, communion should only be celebrated by Christians who are walking in a right relationship with God and with their fellow believers. Communion is celebrated in solemn appreciation and remembrance of Christ, not merely as a ritualistic or legalistic tradition. It is not only a necessary act of obedience, but an expression of worship. Communion is an act of fellowship with Christ and His body, which results in great spiritual refreshment and blessing when obediently and appropriately celebrated. Will you please bow your heads with me? Father, thank you. Thank you for the ordinance of communion. Thank you for giving of yourself body and blood, bread and wine, that we can come together as the body of Christ to celebrate together, not your death, but to remember, to remember your ministry, to remember your act of love, and to remember your example. But most importantly, to remember that you are returning, not as the sacrificial lamb, 
but as the warrior king. Father, we love you, and we thank you for loving us first by the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you.